Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. So this morning we're going to be continuing our series that Simon started last week called Choose a Life of Worship. This series looking at what is worship and what it looks like to choose to worship. And in the Bible, worship is talked about in two different kind of aspects. There's two aspects of worship. There's the Every day, a life of worship, each day worshipping God in the way you live. And Simon talked about that quite a bit last week. The Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is your proper worship. And that's one aspect of worship. But there's another aspect of worship in the Bible. And it's these moments of intentional moments of adoration to God. Think of it a little bit like, worship is a little bit like a marriage, how you have a daily commitment, a daily life of of being married to someone, of of committing each day to uh, be married to them and to do, um, and to kind of make them happy each day. And then you have these intimate moments within a marriage. It's a bit like that with worship. There's this daily choice to worship God in the way we live, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. And then there's also this moment of intimacy, this moment of personal adoration towards God. And in worship to Jesus, these moments of adoration, they might look a little bit like how they look on a Sunday morning where we come together and sing to God, where we wait on God's spirit, when we encounter him. So there's these two things. There's these moments of intimacy, these moments of adoration towards God. And then there's the everyday choice of living for God. I don't know if you've ever thought about what we do here at church and ever thought, why do we do what we do? I was actually chatting to Simon Keeley about it this week. And I was like, where else would you do anything like what we do at church? You know, you, you sit and just listen to someone talk for half an hour and then you sing some songs together and then you wait, wait in silence and, and hope that God's going to speak to us and then you go. And actually, when you think about it, it's quite a weird thing that we do, isn't it? It's quite a weird thing that we do together. And why do Christians, why do Christian churches spend so much time singing? Why do Christian churches spend so much time singing to God? Why is it that we prioritise this every single week? I don't remember the last time I went to a church service that didn't start with some form of sung, uh, of, of singing or chanting or liturgy. And I guess That's kind of what I want to look at this morning is is why do we prioritise this? Why is it important? And what is it that we're actually doing when we sing to God? And there's a few reasons why we do it, why the church does this moment of singing, this moment of sung worship, as we call it. Well, the first reason is that we sing to God because the Bible is full of people 
worshipping God by singing to him. There's the book of Psalms, which is a a big, big book in the Bible. It's just a book full of songs to God. Often songs written by the worship leader, King David. Songs are sung of adoration to God, of thanksgiving to God and giving God glory. But it's a book, if you read through Psalms, you'll see some great songwriters. You'll see some great artists, some great poets. These people that are expressing their love to God through song, through their writing, through musical instruments. And there's also, in Psalms, there's songs of lament, of questioning God, of saying, God, what are you doing right now? I don't understand where you are in this society. I don't know where you are in my life. My life isn't going the way that I thought it would go. What are you doing? And these people, instead of just uh, writing it down or, or praying it, often they, they sing it. They make melodies for it. They sing and they play musical instruments to God. But the key thing in the book of Psalms is that the songs always reflect a relationship. The songs that they sing are reflective of their personal relationship with God. It's an outpouring of the heart towards God. Because worship is supposed to be the natural response to God. It's an overflow, almost, of the love that we already have towards him. When we know Jesus, we can't help but worship. When we know Jesus, we can't help but worship. It's almost as if like when, when you love someone and, and, it, and it's inside, but you can't say it. And it's like singing is, is the moment where it all comes out, where you're expressing the love that you already have within you that you can't contain without telling someone. It's the moment where you're expressing the love that you already have for God. So when we sing, we're releasing praise that's already within us. It's our language of love. It's the love language, our expression of love, the external expression of an internal heart. We sing because we can't help but sing. We can't help but worship. And we also sing because simply we are told to sing in the Bible. Paul says to the church in Colossae, where we've just been doing our last series, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We sing as an overflow of our love for God. And when we worship, God meets with us. See, in worship, there's two things going on. We do two things in worship. Firstly, we give God glory. We give God thanks and praise that he deserves. And in the Old Testament, there are a variety of words used to describe what worship is. A variety of words used to describe um, the singing of songs to God. And they include words like shabak, which means to shout in praise, to shout to God in praise. And halal, which literally means to party for God, to celebrate for God. 
and yadar. That's a fun word, isn't it? Yadar. There's yadar, which means to lift our hands in celebration to God. So there are these words in the Old Testament that describe worship that are really expressive words. They're really celebratory words. They're words that aren't just something we have to do, but it's almost like we're caught up in the moment and we can't help but party. We're caught up in the moment and we can't help but shout to God. We're caught up in the moment and we can't help but yadah. There's nothing that we can do but give him praise, but give him thanks. And this is the words used to describe this type of worship in the Old Testament. And this is why when we come together on a Sunday morning, we, sometimes when we worship, we'll, we'll start with a song of praise. We'll start with a song of celebration. We'll start with a song of triumph or something that's kind of supposed to make us excited to worship God because it's what we can't help but do it. This is, this is how worship's meant to be. It's meant to be celebration. It's meant to be like a party. But there's another side to worship as well. So this first side is this praise, thanksgiving, and glory to God. And there's this other side of worship, that when we worship, we seek to encounter the living God. In his brilliant book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster says this. Oh, I do have it. Oh, no, I don't. Don't worry. (laughs) To worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel. Oh, hello. Have I said Siri? I'll start that again. To worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of gathered community. To worship is to experience reality, to touch life. It is to know, to feel, to experience the resurrected Christ in the midst of gathered community. I don't know about you, but this description of worship excites me. That through worship, we can know, feel, and experience God. And I've got to be honest, this definitely wasn't my uh, idea of worship, wasn't my experience of worship growing up. I grew up in a fairly traditional Baptist church. And my understanding of worship from what I was used to was that we'd sing a couple of songs either to each other or if the person picking the songs was particularly edgy, it might be directly to God. And it would be these songs of thanking him for what he has done, which is great, but that was very much the limit of what I saw worship as. So I grew up with worship being giving thanks to God, but not seeking to encounter God. And then one summer, I went to a Christian youth uh, festival called Soul Survivor. And in that tent, for the first time ever, I encountered Jesus in a moment of sung worship. I encountered Jesus for myself personally. I experienced the love of the Father through singing songs of worship to him. And I've got to 
be honest, from that moment on, I didn't, beforehand, I had no passion for worship, for sung worship. And from that moment on, I had a real passion for worship. And in particular, for seeking intimate moments within sung worship. And I think I was probably a nightmare when I went back to my Baptist church. Because I went back as a 15-year-old boy trying to reform how the church did worship. I tried to convince the church leaders that we need to stop doing stand-up, sit-down songs, where we stand up for one song and then we do something and, then, and, then, and sit down and then stand up 10 minutes later and sing another song. I tried to lead worship in a charismatic way, trying to add in spontaneous moments of singing. That did not go down well. I tried clapping my hands when no one was clapping their hands. And I lifted my hands in the air to the absolute embarrassment of my parents. What is he doing? See, when I look back, I realise that I probably wound a lot of people up by the way that I went about it, by the way I was doing this. But the reality is, I had seen what worship could be. And I was desperate for worship to be a key part of my life. I'd seen what it could be, and I was desperate for that worship to be a key part of my life and to be contagious, that other people would see me worship and want the same level of worship. They'd want to worship and see that God is meeting with me and go, why? I want to meet with God when I worship. And I was so excited in that moment that that I'd I'd found that in worship, I'm encountering God. And for me, that's what worship, that's what gave me such a thirst for sung worship. Psalm 22 verse 3 says, God inhabits the praise of his people. God inhabits the praise of his people. So when we worship God, he is among us. When we worship God, He is meeting with us. And we have a choice when we worship. We have a choice. We can either step into that or we can step away from it. And what I want to encourage us all on today is that it's so worth stepping into that. God inhabits. He lives in the praise of his people. See, worship is all about intimacy with the living God. It's a moment of coming close to Jesus. I mentioned a minute ago some of these Old Testament words that describe worship, but there's also some really intimate words used to describe worship in the Old Testament. We're called to barak, and what barak means is to bow down before God in reverence, to get on your knees before the Lord. What an intimate moment that is. We're also called to Tehillah. I'm not sure if I said it right, but it's Tehillah, which is to sing a new song to God directly from your heart. To sing a new song to God directly from your heart. And that's why sometimes when we're singing together, we'll actually we did it this morning, didn't we? We'll have moments where we sing our own song to God. We sing spontaneously to God because in the Old Testament, we're talked about tehillah, which is spontaneous singing. It's not just singing what we're told to sing on the screens, but it's singing what's really in our heart 
towards the Lord. So if God inhabits our praise, if God lives in our praises, and we have an invitation to intimacy in our worship, I think there's a question that we should be asking ourselves as we come away from a time of worship. There's a question we should be asking ourselves as we come away from church each Sunday. Did I encounter the living Jesus? Did I experience God's Holy Spirit? And did I feel, and I use that word intentionally, did I feel the love of the Father? Because this is the aim. There's two parts to worship. There's giving him praise and there's encountering him. And when we encounter God, when we get a fresh sense of who he is through our time of worship, that is where change comes. It's through encountering him, knowing him deeper, uh, encountering his spirit where we start to change. I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that there's two, moment, uh, two parts to uh, worship that's talked about in the Bible. There's this life and this moment of adoration. And these moments of adoration that I'm speaking about, they can be expressed through song, through dance, through music, or any way at all, really, towards God. But what's consistent in the Bible, what's consistent is that where worship happened, there was a holy expectancy. When people worship in the Bible, there's an expectancy that we will meet with God, expecting a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. And often what we see in the Bible, often these moments of worship, they are expressed through song. We sing songs of adoration to Jesus. But even moments of adoration, even these moments, they're not restricted to singing. And I want to look at a little passage in, the, um, in John where I really feel like worship is expressed in a beautiful, intimate way. And I think there's so much we can learn from it. So let's look together at John 12, verses 1 to 5. It says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus's honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his hair, uh, his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold, the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. In the Gospels, we read lots about Jesus having dinner with people, with tax collectors, with sinners, with Pharisees, all kinds of people. But this is one of the moments in Jesus's life where there's a meal specifically for him. There's a meal to celebrate him in his honour. And presumably, the reason this meal was happening was as a response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's Lazarus's people, really, around Jesus in this moment. 
So this was almost a moment of worship to Jesus anyway. And then Mary takes this worship to a complete new place. She sets the tone for worship in pouring a pint's worth of perfume over Jesus' feet and then wiping the feet with her hair. From this action, I think we see one of the most purest moments of worship ever seen. And from there, there's so much we can learn about how we do worship ourselves. And I just want to point out three things in particular that I think that we can learn from this. Firstly, true worship is expensive. The financial cost of perfume, as we saw, was a year's wages. And Mary wasn't some really rich person that could just throw away a year's worth of wages for anything. I think the average wage in uh, the UK at the moment is 25,000. So just imagine Mary throwing 25,000 pounds over Jesus's feet. This would have been money that she needed, possibly money that was passed on from her family. And I love how in this story it says that Lazarus, who's Mary's brother, was just reclining at the table with Jesus. And I can imagine as Mary pours 25,000 pounds on Jesus' feet that Lazarus is no longer reclining. He sits up, he gives a big old look to Mary and thinks, what on earth are you doing? He must have thought, what a waste. Why are you wasting your inheritance? Why are you wasting all this perfume? Imagine for a second that as everyone came in this morning, I wanted to do a really big gesture. I really wanted this sermon to land. I really wanted us to learn about that worship is expensive. So you came in and there was a briefcase at the front. And the briefcase was open with £25,000 in it. I can imagine the front rows would start to uh, fill up quite quickly, just in case I was about to give away £25,000. And then, as we came in, I said, before we worship, before we sing, I want to have a real moment of worship. And I pour petrol on this briefcase of £25,000. And you're all thinking, what is he doing? Surely not. And then I light a match and go three, two, one, boom. And it blows up in front of you. Now, I think there'd be a massive range of reactions in this room, right? Some of you would be really angry at me. You think, why have you wasted it on that? That money could have gone to so much better causes. You could have given £25,000 to someone that really... You could have given it to many, many, many people and it really changed all of their lives. Some people would be confused. Did that really just happen? Was that some kind of trick? I don't think any of you would believe that was actually £25,000. But I think there'd be a lot of... A lot of you would be confused. And some of you would simply think, what a weird, weird guy he is. But I can guarantee you that all of us would go away thinking that was a bit of a waste. That was a bit of a waste because it could have been a house deposit. And now that's exactly what those in the room would have been thinking. 
That's exactly what everyone in the room around Jesus would have been thinking in this moment. Just because it's in the Bible and was 2,000 years ago, it doesn't mean that this moment was normal. Just because it's in the Bible and there's lots of other weird things in the Bible, it doesn't mean that people back then just did things like that. They just, they just wasted £25,000. This was definitely not a normal thing to happen. But worship's supposed to be costly because it's the giving of ourselves to God. There's a moment in the Old Testament where King David wants to give an offering to God. So he wants to try to buy this field so that he can sacrifice his offering. And he goes to the the farmer of the field and says, can I buy your field in order to make a sacrifice to God? And the owner of the field says, you're King David, you can have the field for free. And King David says, no, 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 no. I need to pay a full price. Because he says this, I will not offer the Lord that which cost me nothing. I'll not offer the Lord that which cost me nothing. I think there is a financial cost to worship. And it's seen in our joyful giving towards God. This is a big part of our worship. It's a surrender to him. Every part of our lives, every part of who we are, we surrender to you. But there's also other costs. There are other costs involved in worship. Singing and praising when we don't feel like it, when we've had a rubbish week. Worshipping in the ups and the downs. Choosing to raise a hand or kneel before God and counting the cost of looking silly in front of others. The cost of time, of giving God our time. Not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout our weeks, giving God our time to worship him, to give him a moment of adoration. A great question to ask ourselves is what does costly worship look like for me? What does costly worship look like for me? The second thing that I think we learn is that true worship is vulnerable. Can you imagine being present at this meal in this moment? This meal for Jesus, you're chilling, you're chatting, you're eating, you're drinking, and then suddenly this strange but extremely intimate moment happens right in front of your eyes. If you're anything like me, I mean, I'm a super awkward person. So if you're anything like me, you'd be not wanting to make eye contact with anyone. You'd be looking down. You'd be hoping the last thing you want is to make eye contact with Mary or Jesus in this moment. This was not a normal thing that happened back then, and it would have felt as odd and as weird to them at this point as it would to us now. And I'm no expert on hair, but I don't think wiping Jesus's feet dry with hair would have been over quickly. This was a pint's worth of perfume. This would have taken some time. But it is said, isn't it, that activity is the enemy of adoration. And in this moment, all things would have stilled. All things would have stilled in the room as this intimacy, this intimate worship fills the room. I would imagine that for those minutes, 
those in the room would have felt like they're invading in something very, pri- very private. They would have felt like they're watching something that they shouldn't be watching. They would have felt like this moment is far too intimate for me to be here watching. And in a sense, this is the level of intimacy that we long for in worship. Moments where we're so abandoned in love and adoration. Moments where there's so much intimacy between us and the Lord that we feel uncomfortable almost to catch anyone's eye. But getting to this place of intimacy takes vulnerability. Mary had to choose to ignore the fact that she might look silly to those that didn't understand her act of worship, which, let's be honest, was everyone in the room. And in a room full of people, she chose to adopt a very vulnerable stance. She got on her knees and loosened her hair. She bowed down and wiped Jesus' feet. What does it look like for you to be vulnerable to God in your worship? What does vulnerability look like for us as we worship God? Maybe it's allowing ourselves to get lost in worship, ignoring everything else, ignoring the person beside me, but simply picturing myself in a room with Jesus. Maybe it's shutting your eyes for the first time. Ignoring anything again, focusing just on you and God, stopping yourself from being distracted, but focusing simply on who Jesus is and what he is doing. Or maybe it's back to this term, barak, to bow down. Maybe we need to get on our knees and worship him. And as you do these things, as we enter into intimacy in our worship, we'll feel a new song rise As the Holy Spirit works in us through this intimacy, we'll feel urged to pray for people. We'll have uh, prophetic words or pictures. In the place of surrender and intimacy, God reveals who he is. As we get closer to God, as we step towards him in intimate worship, we see him more deeply. So a question to ask ourselves this morning. How can I be more vulnerable? in my worship for the sake of intimacy. Finally, true worship changes the atmosphere. The fragrance of the perfume filled the room. The fragrance of that moment of worship filled the room. See, true worship isn't something that happens for a moment. Worship lingers Em and I have a little cockapoo puppy um, called Alfie. And uh, you can see I start to smile as soon as I talk about him. Um, Bless him. He's so cute. But when we first had him, he was an absolute nightmare. Absolute nightmare. He was doing what puppies do, basically. He was biting us all the time. He uh, He wouldn't sleep at all. But the worst thing of all was he was constantly weeing on our carpets, Every morning, well, no, not every morning, every so often, we'd come down, open his crate, and as soon as we start walking down the stairs, we would smell. Oh, it was awful. It would be so bad. And however much cleaning product we used, however much we kept the windows open, the smell stuck around for a couple of days. 
I can imagine with such an expensive uh, perfume and a pint's worth of perfume that the room would have smelt for ages. Probably a nicer smell than my dog's wee, but it wouldn't have gone away easily. Every time anyone entered that room, it would have smelt like this moment of worship. See, one of the reasons that worship is a priority for us is because worship changes things. Worship genuinely makes a difference. If we truly believe that God inhabits, he lives in our worship, then when we get to meet with him as we worship, um, we, we meet with God in a deep, profound way. And when we have real encounters with Jesus, it affects us. When we have real encounters with Jesus, it lingers in our hearts and in our spirits. And through the Holy Spirit, when we worship, his presence fills the room. It's not that he isn't already present with us, but as we see in the book of Acts, when we give God our true worship and give God our time, God shows up in powerful ways. Like a perfume filling the room, when we worship God, his presence fills the room and hovers among us. The aim of worship is to praise God, to give him our everything, to overflow the love that we have for him and to encounter his presence. It's not about sounding good. It's not about making a show. It's not about going through the motions. It's not about, well, this is what we do at church, so we're doing it now. It's not meant to be a one-way thing. It's a relational act. Worship is a relational act. And if we do not come in worship expecting to encounter Jesus, we're missing out. If God really inhabits our praise, then let us sing to him with expectation. If God inhabits our praise, let us meet with him as we sing out to him. True worship is I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart and I will enter his courts with praise. Worship leads us into the presence of God. I want to finish with a quick story. And it might be one that you've already heard before, but if you have, it's worth hearing again. And it's a story that when I was... um, at Soul Survivor for a year, I asked Mike about all the time because it is truly an amazing story. And it's the story of this brilliant song written by Matt Redman when he was worship pastor at Soul Survivor uh, Church in Watford. It's the story of the song Heart of Worship. In the late 90s, uh, Soul Survivor, who'd always prioritized sung worship in their church, experienced what Mike described as a block. There was a block in their worship. They couldn't work out why the church seemed to lack energy and passion in their worship. So Mike spoke to Matt Redman, who was the worship pastor, and they decided they'd try a few things. So the next week, Mike said, okay, let's speed up the songs. So he sat in the front row, and Mike said to the drummer, I'm going to tap along, and I want you to copy the rhythm that I am giving, the tempo, sorry, that I am giving you. So they tried speeding up all the songs. 
And Mike said, nothing changed other than we finished a lot quicker. <laughs> the next week he said, okay, so it's not speeding up the songs. Let's slow them all down and let's just do hymns. Let's slow it all down. Let's go back to the basics and let's just do hymns. So they did that. And again, there was this blockage. And then Mike was, Mike was saying after that service, he was saying, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on. And as he walked out, uh, feeling quite disheartened, he heard people in the cafe talking after the service. And the conversations were like this. I really liked the worship today. This guy played really well. Oh, I didn't, I didn't like this song this morning. This song, oh, it, it just jarred with me. I didn't know how to follow this. I didn't like this. I liked that. See, the congregation had become critics of the worship. They'd been critics of the worship. And as a result, it had turned into a consumer moment. Worship had turned into a consumer moment. So Mike decided, that's it. We're not going to have a band anymore. Let's get rid of all the instruments. Let's get rid of all the singing. And instead, we're going to sit in silence for 30 minutes and wait to see if there's anything that God brings. So the next week, they sat in silence for 30 minutes and no one brought anything. And then they got on with their service. The week after, they sat in silence for 30 minutes and no one brought anything. And someone said to Mike after the service, Mike, you've got to stop doing this because people are going to stop coming to church. And Mike said, well, the worship's not about them. So they kept doing it. And then after a few weeks, after 10 minutes of silence, a song started to rise up. And people were sharing psalms. People were sharing uh, prophecies. People were sharing all sorts of scriptures and hymns. So the next week, Mike said, okay, we're ready. Let's bring the band back. Matt Redman at this time had found it really difficult. He was the worship pastor who'd been told to stop playing, to stop doing his job. And he said to Mike, just before we come into a time of worship, I've written a song over this time. Can I sing it? Can this song be a reflection of the journey we've been on? Can I sing this and let God move as I sing this song? And the lyrics say this. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. We're going to come together again in a minute of 10 minutes to finish this morning of worshipping God. But before we do that, why don't we take a moment to reflect on a couple of questions. What does costly worship look like for us? And how can I be more vulnerable in my worship to God? So if the worship team want to come up, and why don't we just have a couple of minutes of quiet whilst we reflect on these things. You might want to shut your eyes. You might want to bow your heads. 
But let's reflect on our worship, our personal worship towards God. Thank you for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.